Good morning. <laughs> okay, all you guys up front here. Do you know what day this is? Sunday. 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 Oh, good. No, I'm serious. What day is this? What? No. Today, if I'm right, is Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday. Jesus died on Passover, Easter, Passover. He ascended to heaven 40 days later, and then 10 days after that, or a total of 50 days from his death, was Pentecost, and the Spirit came down. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus 11, I believe it's on page 53 in the House Bible, if you're using that. Page 53. So as you're probably aware, this is the 10th and final plague. 10th and final plague that God performed in Egypt to demonstrate his power and secure the freedom of his people, the Israelites. And like Aaron shared last week, you know, there is there's just layer upon layer of depth of meaning that we just can't even hardly scratch the surface of here this morning. But we're going to study how God dealt with Pharaoh uh, in a little more detail this morning. Let me just give you one example as a preliminary to all this. Now, the Egyptians' concept of all their multiple gods was that of really selfish and petty and competing deities of earth, fire, water, etc., whose only difference was in how much power each of them had relative to one another. It was a constant battle of which one was going to reign supreme, and it was back and forth. It's just a power struggle. And the Egyptians' job was to bribe and manipulate all these deities in order to gain their blessing. But Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is more than just a power or a force to be bribed or manipulated. Up until this time, even the Israelites had mainly known God as El Shaddai, which means all-powerful God, almighty God. But while God makes use of his power, it is not fundamentally who he is. The name Lord in your Bible, it's all capital letters, or Yahweh, it goes way beyond this idea of power. He is the creator to whom we owe our very existence, our obedience, and our gratitude. That's one big difference between monotheism and polytheism. It's why God makes such a big deal of revealing this new name at this point in history. Yahweh conveys three thoughts. I was who I was, I am who I am, and I will be who I will be. In other words, God is eternal. He's eternal, but it's more than that. God is more than just a being 
who exists for a very long time. Implied within his name is the simultaneous experience of all three states. In other words, God exists outside of time, outside of space, outside of his creation. But what is the greatest innovation of monotheism? What makes the reality of one God versus many gods so special and so unique? It's the idea that we humans ought to actually feel love toward God. That's it. We see this in the most basic creed of Israel given by God himself in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Now the first sentence here appeals to the mind, but the second, it appeals to the heart. It addresses the heart. You see the difference between this and all the other pagan deities? If I really have a creator, then my life is not just, you know, the byproduct of some cold, blind chance. Someone wants me to be here. Someone who brought me into this world and gave me my body and my mind and my abilities and senses and and a noble purpose for living. All within the context of a loving relationship. And so love is to be my fitting response to him. And all this was completely foreign, unknown to all these pagan, to the pagan pantheistic world. So there was much more at stake here in Exodus than mere liberation. Furthermore, God didn't need to perform all these plagues in order to deliver the Israelites, nor did he need Pharaoh's permission to do it. He didn't need that. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, wherever he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. He could have just snapped his fingers and wiped Egypt off the map. So why all the drama? It wasn't just for Pharaoh's sake. It wasn't for the Israelites' sake or even for all of Egypt. It's more than that. God says in Exodus 9, 15 to 16, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God could have done that. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed where? In all the earth. All the earth. Has that purpose been fulfilled? You bet it has. The Bible is the most purchased, the most read, and the most studied book in all of history. And this purpose continues to be fulfilled as each new generation reads about it. 
So this morning, we're going to read about the greatest physical deliverance of a people ever known to man, two million people. Just for contrast, think about the United States of America, the most powerful country on earth. With all our money and all our sophisticated intel and all our modern military might, we couldn't even get a few thousand people out of Afghanistan successfully. God rescued millions without any human assistance at all. And yet, as impressive as that was, it's just a picture of an even greater deliverance. And that is the spiritual deliverance of a people from their slavery to sin, to the devil, and to death. The first deliverance of the Israelites, it temporarily rescued a couple million. The second deliverance permanently rescued billions. Billions. So let's pray. Let's thank our Creator for this picture that we're about to look at. And we might love and worship God according to the greatness of His name. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the greatness of your power, your wisdom, your glory in saving your people out of slavery almost 3,500 years ago. Help us learn from it this morning and from the feast of Passover that commemorates it. Help us to love you, our creator, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. For you have saved us from something far, far worse than slavery. You saved us from eternal judgment, unimaginable suffering, being shut out from your presence forever. Pray you'd prepare our hearts this morning for communion, communion with you, the living God, as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to read straight through a pretty long section here from Exodus 11.1 through chapter 12, verse 14. So buckle up. All right. The Lord said to Moses, yet one more, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. They wanted to look really good on their exit, you know? No. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know 
that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out! And you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but my, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so... I think it's important to note that earlier, much earlier in the book of Exodus, God in his mercy forewarned Pharaoh that this would happen if he refused to let Israel go. So he's had a lot of time to think about it. Exodus 4, 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is back in Exodus 4. Also recall how earlier Pharaoh had commanded all the male Hebrew babies born to be killed by casting them into the Nile. Well, in God's poetic justice, he threatens to kill all the firstborn males of Egypt. But in this case, Egyptians of all ages died. Whichever ones were the firstborn. And this is important because in that society, the firstborn son was the heir and the pride of the family. He got the best education, the best of everything. He was the joy of the family. So this was a massive blow. Not only by their deaths, but because their their best of the best was now completely gone. It was literally a taking away of Egypt's future. I was curious about 
Just how many Egyptians died from this plague on that night? And Exodus says that there were about 600,000 Israelite households and that the Israelites had began to outnumber the Egyptians. So if that's true, then God killed at least 600,000 Egyptians in one night. And he passed over that many Israelites by not killing them. God graciously gave his people clear instructions on how to avoid this plague. They were to select a year-old male lamb. It was to be a perfect lamb without any flaw or defect. It was to be taken from the flock on the 10th day of the month and then kept until the 14th day. This allowed time for each family to observe the lamb and to confirm that it was fit for sacrifice. But it also caused each family to become kind of attached to the lamb, kind of like a pet. So this deeply impressed on them the costly nature of this sacrifice. An innocent one whom they cared about was to die in their place. On the evening of the 14th, the lambs were to be publicly slaughtered by the whole assembly. Then each family was to apply the blood to two doorposts of their home and on the frame across the top of the door. Now, seriously, if you came to a door that looked like this, would you want to go inside? I mean, it looks like something out of a horror movie. At that moment that the blood was applied, the innocent lamb became their substitute, making it possible for the Lord's judgment to pass over that household, thus sparing the life of the firstborn. That very night, Moses led his people out of Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh commanded them to go. God's deliverance was so great that Israel forever changed their entire calendar to make this the first month of the year. And for the next 35 centuries, Passover, or Pesach in Hebrew, became an annual feast. And God commanded that three symbolic foods be eaten on Passover. First, the young lamb depicting the innocent sacrifice. Second, matzah, or unleavened bread without yeast, symbolized the haste in which the Israelites had to leave Egypt. The bread didn't have time to rise. It was a way of remembering that. And third, the bitter herbs as a reminder of their bitter bondage in Egypt. All this really happened. But it was a a spiritual foreshadow of the future sacrifice of Christ. Let me just share a few ways that it points to him. First, the focal point was the sacrificial lamb. And John the Baptist called Jesus what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Second, Christ was sacrificed for us on the exact same calendar date, the 14th of Nisan. Third, the Passover lamb was to be slain at the time which literally said between the evening. Now this is from noon to 6 p.m. And so the midpoint of that is 3 p.m., which is exactly when Jesus died. Pretty cool. Fourth, the spotless lamb without blemish was a picture of Jesus' perfect and sinless life. 
Five, the lamb was roasted by fire, depicting Jesus' suffering, the fiery wrath of God. Six, the whole of the lamb was to be eaten. Nothing was to be left unused. Likewise, we must partake of the whole of Christ. We can't just pick and choose what we like about him or what he said. We have to receive him as the total package. He's 100% God, 100% man, and 100% the sufficient payment for our sins. Seven, the people couldn't leave the sacrifice over until morning, just like when Jesus died. They had to bury him quickly because of the Sabbath beginning that evening. And eight, in Exodus 12, 46, God had stipulated that no bone of the lamb was to be broken. And of course, the gospel writer John records that this requirement was satisfied with Jesus. Pontius Pilate actually commanded for the legs of the three men on the crosses to be broken, thus speeding up their death. But since Jesus was already dead, he didn't do that, thus fulfilling this. And finally, nine, the Apostle Paul actually makes a direct correlation between the Passover lamb and Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. Again, leaven is a picture of sin. That you may be a new lump, a new lump of dough, as you really are unleavened. God has cleansed us from all our sin. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So there's a direct correlation here. And today, Jews worldwide, they celebrate the Passover by sharing a special meal called the Seder. Maybe many of you have probably participated in that. I don't have time to go into all the details of the meal, but let me just share a few things. The unleavened bread, or matzah, used for the Passover Seder, it points to Christ. One, it has to be unleavened, like I said, because leaven is often equated with sin, and Jesus is sinless. Two, it must be striped. And Jesus' stripes or wounds from the lashes he took are what heal us spiritually. This is in Isaiah 53. Three, it must be pierced. Jesus was pierced or nailed to the cross. Also, there are three separate matzahs. And there are different rabbinic traditions that try to explain this. I won't go into them, but they make no sense, okay? The only satisfactory explanation is that of the Trinity, the Trinity. The three matzahs exist as one within the linen bag, which is called the ekad. And you know what ekad means? It literally means one, Three in one. The matzah placed in the first chamber is never touched, never used, and never seen. It represents God the Father, whom no man sees. Then jump ahead to the third matzah in the bag. This part is the part that's eaten along with the other elements on the Seder plate. It represents the Holy Spirit, who dwells where? Within us. Within us. But the second matzah in the bag is very unique. It is broken in half at the beginning of the Seder. Half is placed in the bag, and the other half, called the afikoman, is placed in a linen cloth. This represents God the Son. It is broken to picture the broken body of Christ. 
The half put back in the bag represents Jesus' divine nature. The other half, wrapped in a linen cloth, represents Jesus' humanity on this earth. And it points to Jesus' actual linen burial cloth. Now, during the Seder, this linen cloth with the ophicomen inside is hidden. And then after dinner, the children, they all go looking for it, okay? And once it's found, it is held for ransom. Held for ransom. Now, the word ophicomen, it's the only Greek word in the entire Passover Seder. Everything else is in Hebrew. And again, the Jewish rabbis usually explain this away by just saying that the word means dessert, since it's eaten after the meal. But the actual translation of the word ephikamen is startling. It's the Greek word ekneomei, which simply means, I came. I came. So year after year, in millions of Jewish homes today, the small voices of children are heard saying, why is this night so different? And the testimony of the Ophicomen echoes back in reply, I came. For it was on this day that the true Passover lamb came and was sacrificed and buried and rose again to provide deliverance, not from physical slavery, but from slavery to sin. God instituted this feast so that the Israelites would remember the blood of the lamb that saved them. And every time we take communion, we remember the blood of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this Passover meal teaches us a lot of things, including that Jesus was fully God, yet fully human. He was broken for us. He was hidden or buried, sought for, and found again or resurrected. And his life was given as a ransom for many. Now, let let me give you one more fascinating connection between the Jewish feast of Passover and our New Testament, the Lord's Supper. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all note that after Jesus gave the bread and the wine to his disciples, he said something along the lines of this, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven. Well, this was a weird thing to say if you don't understand how the Passover meal was celebrated. It was celebrated with four cups of wine, four cups, and each cup had, you know, its own traditions associated with it. Now, typically, if you'd drink the third cup of, you'd drink the third cup of meal, third cup of wine after the meal, and then you'd sing a hymn. All together, the great Hallel, and it ends with Psalm 118, which just happens to be a very messianic psalm. It talks all about Jesus. Now, these three gospels say that before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn. In other words, they had just drank the third cup. And if you were a Jewish reader, you would take note of that. And you'd say, oh, Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. He didn't finish the Passover meal. 
This would explain why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, take this cup from me. Now, some say that this was a fifth cup. There's lots of different traditions surrounding the Passover Seder. I'm not an expert on it, but some say there's a fifth cup, which is the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath, which would also make sense. But again, it was a weird thing to say if you don't understand how the Jewish the Passover meal was celebrated. This also explains why Jesus refused wine on his way to Calvary, as it says in Mark 15, 23. But read with me what happened right before Jesus died. John 19, 29 to 30. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know where I'm going with this. What was it that was finished? Could it be that this was Jesus' fourth and final drink of wine of the Passover meal? I personally believe it is. Why does it even matter? Because The linking, the linking of the Passover meal to the crucifixion is what makes Jesus' death for us a legitimate ceremonial sacrifice. You see, a true Jewish sacrifice requires three things. It requires a priest, an offering, and a liturgy. Priest, offering, and liturgy. Without the liturgy of the Last Supper, In a sense, Jesus is just a willful victim of a crucifixion. He just dies for our sins in in an abstract way, disconnected from the law of Moses. But by linking the cross to the Passover meal, as he was doing in the Last Supper, Jesus makes his sacrifice a real and literal fulfillment of the Passover meal that Moses instituted thousands of years earlier. And so now we partake in this new Passover meal whenever we take communion in order to keep that ultimate and final sacrifice in remembrance. But the Lord's Supper or communion is about far more than just remembrance. I know we often focus on that. I'd like to just take our time remaining to share a few other purposes for it. So let's just take a brief brief look at this. And if you're gluten-free, please raise your hand now and uh, our ushers will get that to you now. You can have that ready to go. All right, purposes for the Lord's Supper. First is commemoration or remembrance. And I don't have time to read these verses, but 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 25, Paul is not saying, you know, I want you to just sit there and close your eyes and, and, and try to remember Jesus. You know, we don't conjure up our recollection of what Jesus did. The Lord's Supper is what is intended to cause us to remember. That's why we have the tangible physical elements, the bread and the wine. Okay, second purpose is proclamation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. It's not... Ideally, an individualistic experience, which is often what we can tend to make it. It is the congregation preaching and proclaiming the gospel 
to one another. That's why some congregations actually have people give it to one another and administer it to one another. Third, it's for the purpose of benediction. 1 Corinthians 10.16 speaks of the cup of blessing with which we bless. What is a benediction? A benediction is a blessing by definition. We bless God because he blesses us in Jesus Christ. Fourth, it's a participation. Same verse. It's a participation or sharing in the body and blood of Christ. As we internalize these symbols of Christ's body and blood, it's a picture of Christ in us. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Fifth, consecration. Another purpose. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 to 22. And the context here was pagan idols. Okay? We can't serve two masters. So it's a reconsecration of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture of Jesus giving himself to us and our giving ourselves to him. Sixth is repetition. He says, as often as you eat and drink it. Well, how often is often? The answer is often. Because we need the fellowship of Jesus so much. You know, think about it at a wedding. We've all been to a wedding. The pastor doesn't instruct the couple to kiss each other once a year, do it, does he? That'd be no. No, we we want this fellowship, this communion to be often. Seven, anticipation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. You know, it's as if God has deliberately designed these little bits of bread and little sips of wine to teach us that this is not a full meal. The full meal is coming. This is just the rehearsal dinner. Finally, the purpose of self-examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. We're to examine ourselves. Judge the body rightly. If there, if there is, you know, sin in your life that, that the Holy Spirit convicts you of, this is a time to acknowledge that, to confess it, to forsake it. Okay? Self-examination. We don't want to live there. That, we don't want to be introspective to, to a fault, but there is a time when it's appropriate. And band, you guys can come on up. So... Think back with me again to the very first Passover that we just read about. After the Israelites painted the blood of the lamb on the door frames, and they are all huddled inside with their doors closed, and, you know, just picture them in there. What did Jesus say he was? He said, I am the door. I am this bloody door that you can hide behind. Also, once inside their homes, guess what? They couldn't see the blood anymore, could they? They're inside, the blood's outside. But all that mattered was if God could see it, right? The Israelites had to exercise faith, faith that the blood was still there, that it was visible, and that it was sufficient to save them from God's wrath. It's the same with us today. We don't presently see the blood of Jesus that was shed 2,000 years ago. 
So like the Israelites, we simply have to trust that when God sees the blood of Jesus that was applied to our lives by faith, the first time that we believed the gospel, that we are saved from his wrath. The blood is all that God looks at. He does not look at our good deeds, our good intentions, or our track record. He looks to see if our trust, if our hope, if our assurance is solely in his blood. Amen? So let's pray, and then we'll take communion, and uh, we'll sing our last song. Oh, Lord, just thank you for this beautiful tapestry that you've woven over centuries, over millennia. It all fits together, and it's all beautiful. Lord, we, we commemorate you right now. We remember you. We proclaim you and the gospel to one another. We bless you, Lord, in benediction. We participate, Lord, in the body and blood of our Savior. We consecrate ourselves to you afresh, Lord. We give ourselves to you afresh in love and in faith. We repeat this again, Lord, as you commanded us to. And Lord, we anticipate that this is just a foretaste of something much bigger, much better that is coming. And Lord, we examine ourselves before you in all honesty and in faith, Lord, that, that the blood of Jesus has, has taken away all our sin. We acknowledge our sin to you. And we thank you that it is all sufficient. We thank you for how you have just spoken all of this to us over such a, a long period of time. And we can look back and see how all the pieces of the puzzle perfectly fit together. Thank you for that. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for, for saving us. We just recall your body and your blood that was shed and given for us so that we might have life and life abundant. Amen.